The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. So a few weeks ago, um, Andre and I heard the testimony of a man that serves with us in the jail ministry, and one of the things that he shared was his choice to shrewdly pray uh, what is an extremely uh, common bedtime prayer for children, that of, uh, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Very, very common prayer that uh, especially young children and perhaps others will will pray on a consistent basis, Um, but one that uh, reflects something. And I stated that this was a shrewd choice on his part because even as a child with little to no clear theological foundations, he concluded that it was a good idea to entrust one's soul to God. So if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. I, I want, Lord, whoever you are and, and whatever the circumstances, Lord, keep me. Lord, Lord, deliver me, as it were. So he didn't have a theological background, didn't have a lot of truth introduced into his life, but had enough to, to pray in such a matter. So it was a good idea to entrust one's soul to God, should he exist or whomever he may be. And we see with that, um, we see with such things that even in the simplicity of a childlike unbelief that was searching for something to anchor itself to, prayer communicated something. What they were praying, what he was praying, communicated something. Now, going back a few weeks more, I was afforded the opportunity to, to pray at a graduation ceremony for a small group of homeschoolers who all testified of being in Christ and who have been raised in a truth-rich climate at home in their respective churches and in their homeschooling co-op. So my being asked to pray was not a, it wasn't a formality. Sometimes those are kind of formal occasions, and, and they'll have a, a local pastor or, or some religious figure come in and pray in the ceremony, but that wasn't part of it. It was a, an intentionality to it. And so it was among the many acts of intentional service that were incorporated into the graduation ceremony. And in accepting this opportunity, I thought and carefully considered how I would pray for them. And in such, I chose to petition that the Lord would keep them. I knew that for each of these graduates, there were many people who had sacrificially invested into their lives, all hoping that their labors of love would not prove to be in vain. Not unlike we want for all of our children. You don't want to invest and pour into them. You love them, and it's heartbreaking when they stray from the truth. And, and Paul speaks of that. He uses that language that I've, I, I want to know that I didn't labor in vain. I didn't run in vain. And obviously that's the nature of what we hope for the members of our own fellowship. We want to labor and invest in one another's life so as to not have run in vain. And so I prayed again that the Lord would keep them that he and his mercy would preserve them from drifting and straying and struggling in ways that are unbecoming and displeasing to him. Now, the parents and many others, I recognize, had done what they could to this point, and these graduates were now effectively young adults being dispatched into a very difficult world. So again, such is the nature of why I pray that the Lord would do what he alone could do. Your reach can only go so far, so we, we cry out to God, would you keep them, Lord? Because as I stated... I thought carefully, considered carefully, how I would pray for them because prayer communicates something. It communicates not only our hopes and desires, but also our understanding of God and his purposes. And so you have a young, unbelieving child that has some contact with some measure of theology, enough to say that if, if this God is there and he works the way he does, I want him to keep me. I do a formulaic prayer, but it sounds good. It'll work. 
And then on the other side of the spectrum, having an absolute confidence that there is a God and he is faithful and he is righteous and holy and he will accomplish his purposes. We look to him, Lord, please keep these young people. And so again, it, it communicates our hopes, our desires. Prayer communicates all such things, our understanding of God, his purposes, how he chooses to engage with this world, how he chooses to engage with his people, and in such also how he chooses to magnify his name. All such matters come through with how we pray, to include how Pastor Matt was praying this morning for you, for us, for all of us in terms of how we handle our singing, how we handle our engagement with truth, how we handle our life experiences. And so with this in view, we would do well to pay close attention to the range of prayers that have been provided to us by way of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God who took what is often private, usually prayers private, either to a person, to the Lord, or to a group of persons. So we, um, I'll activate our, our live feed just as Pastor Frank's going to prayer. And so clearly other people will hear and participate potentially, but prayer by its nature is a private engagement. And yet, in the spirit of God's good pleasure, we have certain prayers that have been preserved for us. And such is what we have also in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And this would most naturally, again, include Paul's prayer for the Philippians, a preserved text, a preserved expression of prayer. A text that we'll give more direct attention to in the coming weeks, but that I think is particularly helpful as we aim to better understand the reason and aims of his writing this letter. So we're introducing the book, but I think a very valuable way to introduce the book is also to consider how did the author pray for those he was writing to? So let's read it together, Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. Paul writes, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in full knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and without fault until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Again, prayer communicates something. And what I hope to demonstrate for you today is that the heart of what this prayer communicated for the Philippians was really fleshed out through the letter's major thematic elements. And, with, um, and when these themes are, are carefully woven together, they all show us that Paul wrote to affirm and strengthen the unity of a joyful fellowship, a unity that is becoming of Christ's church, notably a unity of mind. And to this end, he encouraged the Philippians to progress in the gospel, even as the gospel itself has progressed, to follow the rich range of examples that they had been afforded, to be governed by a view to the resurrection, and to work out all these matters in one another's lives while joyfully trusting God and his rich provisions in Christ. That's, I think, what he's aiming at in his writing. And I think having a proper view to how he's praying will get us there, especially in view of the larger thematic elements that we're going to walk through today. So that being said, and coming to the major thematic elements of the book today, I would first remind you of the foundations that we established last week. So we observed that Philippi's history shaped their thoughts, experience, and culture. We prayed for Andorra this morning. Their, their cultural experiences shaped them. It, it shapes how they, they think about the church. It, it shapes how they hear the gospel. It, it shapes how they engage with one another. It, things like that shape us as well. And so again, we observe that Philippi's history shaped their thoughts, experiences, and culture. Being a Roman colony impacted them. They were unique in that regard. Paul had the Macedonian call, but Philippi was distinguished in its status as a Roman colony. We observe Paul's personal journey to Philippi and the church's founding 
details that shaped them both. So we took some time to consider Paul's personal history. We, we didn't have to go through um, the, basically from the point of his conversion um, to his time of training, to his being called to Antioch, to his being dispatched out to the Jerusalem Council, all those matters. We could have just started with the second missionary journey and gotten him to Philippi, but all those things were instrumental in better understanding Paul, better understanding how he's going to engage this church, and better understanding the church of Philippi when we did get him there. We observed that this was a prison epistle written by Paul from Rome. Again, sometimes people will contest various elements of a book. Authorship here is pretty consistent. We know it was Paul. We know that. The scriptures declare that, but that's not really challenged so much. What is more consistently challenged is where he wrote from. We are going to come from the position that he wrote from Rome. We observed that this was a friendship and exhortation letter, possessing clear elements that were common at the time of its writing and that proved to be a precious vehicle to communicate a relationally, <clears throat> excuse me, a relationally intensive exhortation to a beloved church. So there was different genres and subgenres, as it were, and this was fit the boxes of a friendship letter. That would be a natural conclusion I think you would come to just reading the letter. That's a natural conclusion I came to, multiple commentators came to, and that you later find out is actually, a, again, a subgenre, a friendship letter, and a letter of exhortation. And what's a letter of exhortation? There's all kinds of exhortations. Well, you have a discouraging or dissuading and a persuading and also a lot of examples. Well, if you read the book of Philippians, it's exactly what you have. We also observed the flow of the letter's development by way of walking through an outline of the book. And that might have seemed a little tedious at times. We're, we're systematically walking through the book, but we're, we're framing it and we're trying to show how it's knit together. There's people that will challenge even those kinds of things, that it was multiple letters cobbled together. It was multiple letters that somebody else put together um, we're, we're not subscribing to that. We're also not subscribing to what was a friendship letter. And, you know, when you talk to friends, sometimes you just kind of eh, put a bunch of ideas together. Now, there was a, a, a weaving together of a purpose and aim and its development. And with all these elements in view, we concluded our first week of introduction by affirming that Philippians was a letter written by a friend who was expressing the joyful fellowship of a gospel-worthy life framed by unity of mind. Or to express it in a more simplistic manner, we affirmed with Keith Essex, Philippians was God's letter to a good church and that a good church can always do better. And so we landed last week. Now, looking ahead to where we're going now, I've identified eight major themes for Philippians. Uh, some more directly bring us to the letter's primary aim and the others support this process. And these themes are Christ, God the Father, think or mind, joy or rejoice, unity, the gospel, gift or giving, and fellowship. So again, just to simplify it, Christ, God the Father, think, joy, unity, the gospel, giving, and fellowship. And as you can see, I've provided a chart for you that lays out where these themes fit within the book. And with this, you may have noticed that I have a one-word title for each chapter of titles that are uh, that I did not necessarily incorporate into my outline as they're just structural handles for me. So in my outline, I broke it up a little bit more precisely. I said this passage I'd identify this way, and I, I see these relationships. But for my purposes, when I'm doing the introductory work and laying foundation, sometimes if I want to just give a, a, a large chapter title, it just gives me a handle to kind of frame the rest out. And so I've included it here in the church, uh, excuse me, on the chart. And so 
Um, I recognize that that may or may not be helpful, but because I have them, I'd like to just walk through why did you select that one word to identify, you know, a view to that chapter? I think that can help us actually further frame the book. So for just a moment, let's look at those matters. So chapter one, I titled Progress, because there's personal, relational, and gospel progress expressed throughout this chapter. He's being very uh, introductory in a lot of ways. How am I, this is how I'm doing. I've heard these things about you. Here's my concerns for you. And also, here's the nature of the gospel. I'm in change. The gospel is not in change. It will continue to progress. So there's progress in chapter one. Chapter two, I chose to describe it by example. There are four magnificent examples in this chapter, the chief among them being Christ. That's very obvious. But it also goes on to include Paul's example, which is very important throughout the book. Timothy's example. He's given kind of a, a co-author identity introducing the book, but we don't really see him again except for this point in time which he's referenced to as he has a, a like concern, a like affection for you that I do, and he's exemplary. And then we have our dear friend Epaphroditus, who I think is a, an unsung hero. So while I can't sing, I will exhort you to think about him as a hero-like figure. And he's exemplary. And so we have, again, <clears throat> four magnificent examples, Christ, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. So I chose to identify that chapter as example. Chapter three, resurrection. Paul establishes that his confidence is in nothing short of the resurrection. And he establishes that the power of Christ's resurrection is his own great pursuit. So again, we, we think about that generous resume that he speaks to, and he says, you know, it doesn't matter. What does matter is the power of Christ's resurrection. That's what I want to know. It's what I want to secure. So resurrection. And then chapter four, fellowship. Um, here we have the call to come alongside those within the body, how we're to think and uh, how we're to speak and think and, and special attention to the fellowship of service and suffering shared by Paul and the Philippians. So again, we see fellowship more precisely being uh, addressed in chapter 4. Now, uh, this chart and the one I'm about to put up are designed to be more of a reference tool. So if you look at it and you're thinking, I don't, I'm not going to remember a lot of that, I'm, I'm not going to be able to write it all, that's, that's okay. It's just a, it's a tool to look at, to draw from. You have it in your notes and I can make it available and otherwise, but it's just a reference tool to help us kind of frame and think about these things. We're going to draw from them um, in just a moment and try to, to solicit what merits they can provide for us in terms of understanding the book. But I primarily just want you to see the development and outworking of the book's themes. Again, each of which we will briefly overview this morning before giving a few of their elements some closer attention. So here's our first mind map. Um, if this isn't how you think, it's okay. There's time you can mature in these things. No, it's, it's a way that um, it helps me structure, frame, and uh, approach the book. If it doesn't help you, then just put it away. It's just a tool for us to look at this. But I want us to consider um, the matter of our first major thematic element, namely, uh, well, first, we'll get to that, actually. I just want you to see the structure. So first we have structure. You see the chapter titles, you see the breakdowns, and then you see where the themes fit in. So again, what you have before you is Philippians broke up by chapter, outline elements, the outline elements that we introduced last week, and then themes placements within the portions of the text. So where each theme is, how it's fit into the book, just a way to, to put that chart into a more precise layout. Now the blue highlights are the 25 imperatives woven throughout the book. 
And the reason that they are not 25 blue sections is that a number of verses have multiple imperatives within them. An easy one, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. He's, he's calling on two times, rejoice. Or I've shared my joy. Share your joy with me. Well, that was one. That will, there's plenty with two in there. Now, these are just resources, again, to frame our view to the development of the book's major themes. So let's walk through them now, beginning with Christ, who by numerical value could be argued as the chief theme. And numbers aside, it's, it's reasonable to consider the centrality of Christ in any given New Testament letter. I know there's a range of hermeneutical convictions about um, do we see Christ in every passage, in all circumstances, at all time? Did we find him in Hosea? Did we, did we find him in Psalms? Did we find him? Not necessarily pursuing um, that type of hermeneutic, but I will argue in a New Testament epistle, we ought to look for how is Christ drawn out? How is he esteemed? How is he put on display in what, in what regard? And here, he's very, very prominent in the book of Philippians, as again, we would expect of a New Testament epistle. And Again, even with a view to my own one-word titling of each chapter, we see that. So one would reasonably see that here, too, Christ is plainly central within this letter. So if we just quickly look in chapter 1, we consider gospel progress. Well, we recognize it's Christ gospel, and it's the conforming of Christ. It's the conforming of Christ in the lives of individuals that produce their progress. So we're looking at progress. Well, the progress of the gospel, that's Christ's gospel. You're looking at the progress of the believer, the sanctification process that's being conformed to Christ. Next, we see um, chapter 2, examples. As I've already mentioned, Christ is the unequivocal preeminent example. He lays that out in 5 through 11, to, to have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. And then he lays out very clearly the ex extraordinary, unequivocal, preeminent example of Christ. And we see in chapter 3, you only have any discussion, much less, um, much less one centering on and focusing on resurrection with a view to Christ's resurrection. If we put the term resurrection up there, it has no value outside of Christ's resurrection. And then in chapter 4, um, the unity as it, or the, the fellowship that we are looking for and uh, esteeming is a unity and fellowship that is developed and is wholly bound up in one's personal fellowship with Christ, which has in turn produced a fellowship with other believers. So our fellowship is with Christ, and in turn a fellowship with other believers. So, even a plain reading without regard to how often a term, title, or name appears, one can reasonably and rightfully conclude the centrality of Christ in Philippians. That's obviously something that we might take for granted, but I think there's value in drawing it out. Now, as many of you will remember, a critique, though, of James. So we're taking it for granted in Philippians, but that wasn't really the case with James. And if you remember, one of the critiques that James had was that it was a letter that was allegedly lacking in a due emphasis on Christ. This was a critique that was answered by noting how James not only did make clear references to Christ, but also how often he echoed our Lord's words. And in this, James gave us the voice of Jesus more clearly than any other New Testament letter. So his Christological development was different, but Paul's is more overt, more direct. So Paul's approach is, again, different than James. And while he may be critiqued on a variety of fronts by those who were so inclined to challenge the Scriptures— you'd be hard-pressed to argue that Paul does not plainly and frequently speak directly about Christ. To this point, Paul uses the term Christ and Jesus for a total of 593 times in his letters, 
And this does not include the range of synonymous uses of Lord and the employing of pronouns. So that would balloon out even further. So an extremely heavy use of Christ is not unusual for Paul. However, each respective letter in its own way contributes to Paul's and others, other authors of Scripture's larger development of Christology or the theology and doctrines of Christ. And within this letter, we have a particularly valuable contribution to Christology when in chapter 2 he speaks to Christ's perfect example. Paul unpacks Christ's pre-existence, his incarnation, his death and resurrection, and finally his exaltation. And within this treatment, he directly addresses critical details surrounding Christ's humility and submission, which, again, are invaluable in our larger view to Christology. But by the nature of referencing Christ so frequently within this letter, we'll see that while a customized Christology for the Philippians was not Paul's primary aim, there were a number of ways that Christ was spoken to in the letter, and all of these, and these all contribute to Christology's overall unity and development. And to help us see that, I've broken up these many references into 14 categories for Philippians. And while this was a more subjective process than other elements of structure that we've seen, I hope it'll be helpful nevertheless. So, Paul speaks to Christ as Lord throughout his letter. And often this is just by way of title. But chapter 2 plainly again goes beyond title to expressing the nature and scope of his lordship. Every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And as a subgrouping under Christ as Lord Paul, was Paul's repeated calls to rejoice in the Lord. So how, what, what among many things, how ought we to think about Christ's lordship and his identification as being Lord? Well, Paul would say, well, rejoice in that. Rejoice in Christ as Lord. So once more, you plainly see Christ as Lord throughout this letter. There are also at least four references to Christ's return, three times by way of the title, The Day of Christ. And so he, Paul has a very clear view to the day in which the Lord will return for his own. He, even beyond that, we know that he has a view to being with the Lord, but specifically here, our, our Lord's return. There are also seven references to suffering that in various ways are associated with Christ as it was for him that his people suffered, be it in the context of chains that Paul speaks to a number of times himself, be it in the, the treatment by bad actors. And by that, I don't mean people that are not skilled as actors, but those who are acting in a way that is unbecoming of gospel testimony, almost dying in service. That's a form of suffering that Epaphroditus experienced or the loss of all things. That's a good suffering, but it is suffering. There is a loss that's associated with that. And I would propose that there are four references to Christ's exaltation, one plainly being in the climax of Christ's example in chapter 2, but also in his being magnified through Paul's life. If to, for me to live is Christ, and to be, and there's a, that's a reason for boast. In the, and we have that language in the boasting of service to Christ as an exalting and an amplifying and glorifying of Christ, or the true circumcision, uh, circumcision boasting in Christ himself. These are all expressions of him being exalted and him being glorified. We also see multiple references, these being a little more broad and subjective, to Christ being both a believer's life and their best. Again, um, to say that Christ is our best, very subjective titling, very subjective way to, to couple things together, but I think it's a really good way to think about it. Christ indeed is our best and the best expression of a variety of things. So two groups that we could perhaps summarize with Paul's um, musing over his circumstances and their outcome in chapter 1 where he states, so we could see, again, how do we want to think about him being 
our best and our life? Well, I think chapter 1, uh, verses 21 to 23 summarize how we could think about those two categorical groups where Paul writes, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know what I will choose, but I am hard-pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. So again, Christ is my life, and Christ is best. And we could go on in considering how Paul speaks to Christ in the context of greetings, of love and affection, of righteousness, the gospel, salvation, encouragement, humility, and even enemies themselves, enemies of the cross of Christ. All points of development woven throughout this letter with a relationship to Christ. So, as plainly established, Christ permeates this letter as he ought to permeate our stories, our lives, our thoughts, and our conduct as well. This is a heavy Christological epistle, even though it's not aiming to develop a, crystal, uh, a doctrine of Christ so much as it's just saturated with Christ. So that's something to, to have in mind as we approach the letter. Now, it could be argued that Paul not only helps develop our Christology in this letter, but also provides some support to our theology proper as well, otherwise expressed as the study of God, notably God the Father. However, because Paul's references to God the Father are fairly evenly spread throughout the letter and are without an overt thematic emphasis, I'm going to just quickly list off the ways in which he appears to make these references. God the Father is glorified through Christ and his people. We're going to see that throughout Philippians. He's a witness to Paul's affection for the Philippians. We're also going to see he sanctifies believers. He is the source of righteous judgment and salvation. He exalts Christ. He receives prayer, provides peace, and fulfills all his children's needs from his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So while this is not a, a saturating theme, in the same way that Christ was a saturating theme, it is comprehensive. And each of these statements are bursting with opportunities for being driven to worship and joyful obedience, which is where I think Paul would have us to go. He would have us to be joyfully obedient with a view to the Lord and his purposes throughout this life as we walk in unity together. This is part of having unity of mind, is thinking right about Christ, thinking right about God the Father and God the Spirit, which got more uh, limited treatment, as it were, in this letter. Now, a natural transition of attention from Christ and the Father would be the next major theme of the gospel. Paul uses the term gospel a total of 60 times in his letters, the nine references here constitute 15% of those uses and the most dense use of the term among his letters. So again, he's got a really heavy Christological focus. Not a surprise, he focuses on Christ throughout his letters. But here, again, not a surprise that he gives a lot of attention to the gospel, but it's the densest treatment of the gospel. Only Romans joins Philippians in having the term gospel nine times, and this over the span of four times as many chapters. So Philippians, four chapters. Romans, 16 chapters, both and, and directly speak of the gospel. And I'm speaking, again, directly of the term. Obviously, it's filled out, fleshed out, developed, but direct treatment nine times each. Now, other letters have a great density of use of the term, but none to the degree of Philippians. Even so, it's interesting that on account of the nature of this letter, Paul does not overtly speak to the content or even nature of the gospel, but rather primarily of service to the gospel, and then one reference each to its fellowship and living worthy of it. So again, he's not going to unpack as he does in Romans. This is how you understand the gospel in, in terms of God and man and sin, redemption in Christ. 
He rather speaks to service to the gospel, service and fellowship, and service and fellowship and living worthy of the gospel. So we have a gospel-dense engagement directed toward those who are running well, faithfully serving, and in fellowship with Paul. And in such, might we be reminded of the, the clear role the gospel continues to play in the lives of the mature and joyful believer. We don't just speak of the gospel in terms of, oh, there's young people or persons that maybe have never heard these things. Um, just a, a week ago, last week, in our Fundamentals of the Faith class, um, Eric was uh, very generously um, teaching on our behalf and, and working through the matters of obedience and evangelism. And we were talking through how to understand, uh, how do we want to engage the matter of evangelism with, with young people, especially uh, supermajority that are unbaptized. And so we want to, to think about that. And one of the things I was also sharing with him was uh, listening recently to John Piper talking about a question that he was asked, if I don't share the gospel, am I a believer? And one of the things that he took on with that was, first, let's consider the range of the gospel being spoken about. And he talked about, you speak gospel truth to other believers. We affirm that together. We speak of these things in our natural conversation. If that's lacking, then yeah, there might be a point of concern. Now, in terms of declaring the hope of the gospel to an unregenerate person, that may be a matter of maturity that you need to develop and work at, but we are a gospel-speaking people, and Philippians is written to a mature and joyful group of believers that Paul is basically saying, you're running well, but I'm going to give you intensive treatment and focus on the gospel, as is fitting for a healthy, faithful church. Then we the next, give our attention the next major theme, that of gifts or giving. And if you're familiar with Philippians, you ought to think about these things and recognize that's kind of the, the broad historic context, as it were. So the, we have the, the historic context of Paul's relationship with the Philippian church, centered around, as it were, at least in terms of this moment, generous giving. And I've broken this theme into four parts, one speaking to Epaphroditus's role, one to the nature of the relationships between those giving and receiving, the spiritual nature of this work, and how it speaks to the matter of God providing directly and through his people. Now, while he's not mentioned many times, I've already mentioned Epaphroditus is a key character in this letter. He's, he's on the short list of heroes, as it were. I, I think he's remarkable, even with what little we do know about him, but he is a key character in this letter as he was the Philippians' messenger and minister to Paul's needs. He was very highly esteemed by Paul. And in turn, Paul expected his fellow believers, the, the Philippians, to esteem him as well. His role was not unlike also that of Paul and Barnabas. As you remember, part of what we looked at with Paul's journey in Acts was that Paul and Barnabas, they also did a like service for the Jerusalem saints. They went from Antioch to Jerusalem where they were trusted as faithful couriers of gifts to those who were in need, just as Epaphroditus went from Philippi, I would argue, to Rome as a faithful courier of the Philippians' gifts to Paul. And with this, we also need to consider the role of the greater Philippian church and the nature of their relationship when considering this theme of gifts and giving, as it was a very personal role. They gave to him who they knew, to whom they loved, they invested in him. And I think about that because sometimes people hear of needs from persons and churches or ministries, and they're moved to supply um, help in whatever measure they're able to. And often, in such cases, there will be there will never be a personal relationship between the two parties. If for no other reason, it's just not feasible on account of distance and opportunities. 
So an easy example of this, it's not unlike our ministry of prayer, and I hope you see it that way. We're not checking boxes for what ought to we, how do we fill out a worship service? Well, maybe we should pray for somebody else, just, just not ourselves all the time. Well, okay, we'll pray for Christ Church somewhere. Well, where do we do it? Let's go through the nations. That's not the thinking pattern. Rather, it is a ministry of prayer on behalf of Christ Church throughout the world, and that's what we do. So while Beverly knew about Andorra, I don't think that she'd been there or that she frequents there. I don't think they, y'all don't go downhill skiing in Andorra very often. And so um, that being the case, probably not going to meet a lot of believers from Andorra. They're a very small group as it were. But nevertheless, we serve them in prayer. And again, maybe we won't meet them on this side of eternity, but we can labor on their behalf. And that's okay. It doesn't diminish the value of our service or they're benefiting from it. It's not just for us. It doesn't make us feel good. We're serving them in prayer. However, having a face or name is invaluable when possible. So probably not going to Andorra, but we did have some friends go to Greenland. And um, it was Greenland or was it Iceland? Oh, same thing. Um, but um, they went over to Iceland and they met one of the few evangelicals there and a pastor and they developed a relationship with him. And, and through that, he, ended up, he, well, he came to the United States anyway, but through their relationship, I met him. Don't know a lot of people from Iceland, much less a faithful believer. And so when you do have those opportunities, it enriches your service in a unique way. You know them better. You know how to pray better. You have a relationship, an investment. And by stating again, um, and you have a face to the name, and and by having a face to a name, again, it's that relationship, which is exactly what we plainly see here in this letter. There was a relationship between the Philippians and Paul. And therefore, he writes in chapter 4 that the Philippians' giving was directly tied to their thinking about Paul. It wasn't that they're thinking about him because they saw a newsletter about what are the apostles up to, and this, this guy that's the apostle to the Gentiles. No, they thought about him because they knew him, whom they had fel- faithfully fellowshiped with in this ministry of giving and receiving. And we will also see that this ministry of giving was a spiritual service, it produced righteous fruit to their account and was regarded as a sacrifice pleasing to God. Finally, we'll see that this theme of giving and receiving was a tangible expression of the church generously supplying all that was needed for a faithful servant and an expression of God supplying all their needs. And so this is a spilling over. They're supplying for Paul. Paul saying God supplies and Paul affirming God will supply all that you need from his riches and, and glory in Christ just as he continues to do for all cheerful givers. Those who find joy in their fellowship of giving and receiving for kingdom purposes can be confident that the Lord will provide. It's not that we are going to uh, diminish the, uh, the resources, as it were. The next major theme that we'll give attention to plainly overlaps with that of giving and receiving, a relationship that Paul, again, as I mentioned, expresses a fellowship. If a fellowship of giving and receiving Um, a fellowship between him and the Philippians. That particular, again, expression was um, referenced in uh, the last uh, chapter of the book, Um, the expression of the fellowship of giving and receiving. He also speaks to a shared fellowship in the gospel, uh, the fellowship of the Spirit, and the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, and the fellowship of personal sufferings. And so he's got a range of experiences and relationships in which he says this is a fellowship, a fellowship of giving, receiving, a fellowship of sufferings, a fellowship of ministering, a fellowship of personal sufferings. But we use that term fellowship, and sometimes 
Sometimes I'll refer to you as our, our local fellowship. Sometimes we'll say, we're going to break now for a time of fellowship. And so how might we think through that a little bit more? Well, let me flesh this out just a little bit. A few weeks ago, um, some of us were up in Indiana. Um, we didn't just find ourselves there. We were there for a purpose. Uh, we were attending Susanna Neal's graduation. And at that time, the president of the university gave the commencement speech. And having a really a, an intimate and clear understanding of the university himself, he referenced the range of experiences that the graduates have they've had over their time there. So he, he's able to draw from nuanced things with uh, maybe this part of campus or these things that we, we've done together. He's able to draw on those things. But one of the things that he spoke to that many university or presidents, professors, and students could speak to was the long walks with others, other students, other persons of particular interest, perhaps. Long walks that include a, quote, DTR conversation. And when he referenced a DTR conversation, there was uh, laughing among the students, but I don't recall him explaining what DTR means. So the statement may have been lost on some of the guests present. Uh, Matt, did you know what he meant by DTR? Oh, yes. I'm full of surprises. But yeah, there's, um, there's uh, not everybody got it, though, and that's okay. Uh, but a DTR conversation is a define the relationship conversation. Effectively, the, the awkward discussion between two persons in a relationship that may have matured into feelings for one another, but the status of their standing is no longer wholly clear. Now they're wondering, are we just friends? Are we a couple? If we're a couple, how serious is the relationship? And so the agony of awkwardness continues on a long walk. Concluding with either more confusion, perhaps tears, maybe joy, maybe some weird mixture of both, and now things are even less clear. But there was no ambiguity here. There's no DTR with Paul and the Philippians. What, what's the nature of our relationship? The nature of this relationship was that of being in joyful, others-oriented fellowship with one another, a relationship that is utterly unique. Unique because there are certain bonds that a blood or familial relationship brings. There's certain points of, 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 of unity that being in family and, and, and tied by blood brings. And there's certain bonds that a friendship brings. Sometimes people are closer to friends than they are to family, sometimes closer to family than friends, and, and sometimes they overlap in a variety of ways, but each have their unique strength of bond, and each are superior in some ways or closer than others in other ways. However, Christian fellowship unites these relationships. It's a familial relationship secured by the blood of Christ that binds together a people as those who are closer than friends. That's what fellowship is. It's being in a familial blood relationship that's closer than the elective friendship or the elective relationship of a tight or close friendship. It's a relationship rooted in the gospel, empowered by the Spirit, and forged more tightly through mutual service and suffering. And such is the nature of Christian fellowship. And the Philippians appeared to have had such an abundance with its range of expressions noted in this letter, a range of expressions that we would do well to cultivate ourselves too in this, our own local fellowship. Might we more vigorously pursue a shared fellowship in the gospel, a shared fellowship in the spirit, a shared fellowship in Christ's sufferings, a shared fellowship in one another's afflictions, and a shared fellowship in the matter of giving and receiving. That was what Phil the Philippian believers were exemplary at. Paul's able to say, 
we are in fellowship in these regards and we share the sweetness of this fellowship. Now, we've spoken to five of the eight major themes of Philippians so far. Christ, God the Father, the gospel, gifts and giving, and fellowship. The three remaining are the ones that I'm persuaded shape the aim of this letter most clearly. They're all valuable. I wouldn't have just spent your time and said, well, isn't that neat? Now here's the good stuff. Now they're all framing this letter. They're all directing us to a a unified appreciation of what he's aiming at. But I would argue the three remaining are the ones that I, again, I'm persuaded to shape the aim of this letter most clearly. That of think or mind, joy or rejoice and unity. So think, joy, and unity. These are also the three major themes that have imperatives associated with them, either directly or indirectly, and in such constitute just over half of the book's commands. Now, of these three remaining major themes, the one that is probably most commonly associated with the Philippians, excuse me, with the book of Philippians, is that of joy or rejoice. There's really good reason for this. These terms stand out in their number of applications and expressions throughout the letter. Uh, Warren Wiersbe has his well-known commentary series known as the B series. And so he naturally titled his commentary on Philippians, Be Joyful. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in a like manner, titled his commentary on Philippians, The Life of Joy and Peace. So, while I concur that joy is a major theme of, or element of the letter, I think it's important to also recognize that joy's strong presence with the Philippian, within Philippians is more one of tone, though, than aim. So again, it is a major theme. It permeates the letter. It doesn't just permeate the letter. It really shapes so much of it, but it shapes it in more the area of tone than aim, which supports our aim in a unique way. Now, while joy is commanded and associated with several commands, almost 30% of the imperatives of the book are attached to or speak to joy, it was not necessarily, again, why Paul wrote the letter. That's what we're trying to understand is that it's so valuable, it's so present, it's so uh, indispensable to the, the appreciation and understanding of the letter, but it wasn't why he wrote the letter. Even so, joy certainly has a significant role in the letter, and as such, I've divided its use and references into four categories. Joy toward the Philippians. Personal joy, which I subdivided between the Philippians' personal joy and Paul's personal joy commands associated with um, or calling upon joyful actions and joy's association to the gospel. So first, we can note that there were three times that Paul expresses joy on account of the Philippians. In 1.4, Paul states that his prayers for the Philippians are expressed with joy. That's a good thing. As they come to mind and as he's laboring to the Lord for them, what's the the natural response? It's, It's joy. And for one, Paul calls the Philippians his joy and crown. Some people like to, Andre, he, he sees my dad. Hey, dad. He, he likes to call people. Uh, um, uh, and sometimes, uh, so there's that, that reflects their relationship. Um, not truthfully, <laughs> but it does reflect something of their relationship. Maybe you call your, your spouse by whatever um, name, public, private, or otherwise. Paul wasn't just throwing, you know what, joy, you're my joy and crown. No, they really were a joy to him. 
And he does esteem them in this relationship. There is joy and crown. 4.10, Paul shares that the Philippians' service toward him produced joy in the Lord. So again, he's going to command them, you need to have joy in the Lord, and you know what? You're participating in my joy in the Lord. Next, we have the personal joy of both the Philippians and Paul. For the Philippians' personal joy, we observe that in 125, Paul ministers for their joy and progress in the faith. I'm working hard so that you will be joyful yourselves. In 217, Paul shares his joy with the Philippians. I, he's, he's taking his joy and he's, he's sharing it with them. And then he's going to go on to command, you share your joy with me. In 228, Paul prioritized sending Epaphroditus home with the Philippians' joy in view. It wasn't that I'm tired of this guy. No, it's that I know this will secure your joy. As to Paul's personal joy, we observe in 2.2, he petitions for his own joy in the Philippians, thinking the same way. It's really interesting. It's very important to me. We're going to come back to that. But again, he says, fulfill my joy. You help in, in making my joy full by doing these things. And in 2.18, he calls upon the Philippians to share their joy with him as he has shared his joy with them, as we've talked about that reciprocating joy. I've shared my joy with you. You share your joy with me. Next, we have seven commands for joy. In 2.2, we again have Paul petitioning. Sometimes there's going to be overlap here. We have Paul petitioning for his own joy in the Philippians thinking the same way. So a little bit more precisely how we're talking about it. How do they fulfill his joy? By thinking the same way. It's going to be very important. 2.18, Paul calls upon the Philippians to rejoice in their shared service and then also to share, again, their joy with him. In 2.29, Paul instructs the Philippians to receive Epaphroditus with joy. He was a faithful servant and worthy of such a reception. In 3.1, Paul calls upon the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. And then in 4.4, Paul twice more calls upon the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. And last, we observe Paul's association of joy with the gospel. 1.18, Paul twice declares that he rejoices that Christ is preached. There's circumstances around that. There's burdens surrounding that. And yet, what does he declare? Even though they're doing it with really kind of bad or malice motives, the fact that Christ is preached produces joy for Paul. So as you can see, there is plainly an expectation and cultivation of joy that seasons this book. It was expressed both relationally and theologically. It was expressed in view of service and sacrifice. And it was expected of God's people just as it's expected of us today. We are to be seasoned in joy. Now, whereas joy is a permeating thematic element, again, I would argue that unity of mind, unity of mind or unity of thought necessarily narrows our aim and the understanding of Paul's writing this letter. So remember, there were three left, joy, thinking, and unity. Well, I'm going to argue the combination of thinking and unity are what's going to sharpen his focus. So with this in view, we'll give our um, we'll first give our attention to thinking or mind. A major theme that I've divided into five categories, thinking toward or about others, mature thinking, wrong thinking, humility in thinking, and unity in thinking. First, we can note that both Paul and the Philippians thought about each other, and two passages, or, uh, two passages overtly expressed this. In 1.7, Paul expressed his positive thoughts about the Philippians, who he stated were in his heart. So again, they, they were on his mind. He's thinking about the Philippians. In 4.10, we hear that the Philippians had revived their thinking about Paul. Now, admittedly, um, admittedly, this category of thinking is not quite of the same nature as the other ones. 
And if we did not restrict ourselves to the presence of the term for the category, we could reasonably add, who else is thinking about others? Well, Timothy, as he shared Paul's concern for the Philippians, he clearly had them in mind. And we could add Epaphroditus, who was burned by his attentiveness to the Philippians' concern for him. He found out that they were distressed about his condition. He was thinking about them, and it motivated his conduct to go back and secure their joy. Next, we have the matter of mature thinking, or thinking that is becoming of one who is working out their salvation with fear and trembling. In nine, Paul prayed that the Philippians' love would abound to full knowledge and all discernment. So again, how he prays is important, and he's praying that the Philippians' love would abound to full knowledge and discernment. In 3.10, Paul expresses that his own preeminent desire was to know Christ. We sang about that today. So I've been wrestling with, I wrestle with the text more than I wrestle with songs, but I tried to decide on Wednesdays, we, we, we've, I've developed a pattern of um, uh, imposing upon everybody to sing a certain thing in view of our text. With James, it was very easy. We sung part of James 1. So I was thinking, what can we do for Philippians? And one of the songs that we sang today actually fits really well with wanting to know Christ. That's a really good song for Philippians. That was a preeminent desire of Paul. And 3.13, Paul correctly addressed that he has not yet achieved the full maturity that he so vigorously pursued. So he's assessing his situation. He's thinking about it. In 3.15, Paul addressed the right way of thinking, and he plainly expected some measure of harmony in the matter. Not everybody's going to think this way, and in maturing you should, and you will. In 4.7, it was stated that the peace of God surpasses all comprehension, and that it also guards minds in Christ Jesus. And in 4.8, Paul prescribes the things on which the Philippians should be thinking. Sometimes you're looking for a, some, uh, a passage to memorize. Sometimes lists are very easy. 4.8 gives you a list of things. This is what you should be thinking on. Next, in stark contrast to mature thinking, we also have examples of wrong thinking or thinking that does not befit a faithful believer. In 117, we see that those who opposed Paul thought that their preaching Christ would cause him affliction. In 3.4, Paul spoke to the wrong thinking of those who put their confidence in the flesh. And in 3.15, Paul corrected those who were not thinking truthfully. And then finally in 3.19, we see the enemies of the cross of Christ had set their thoughts on earthly things. They had improper wrong thinking. Now, coming back around to proper thinking, we note the two references with a view to humility. In 2.3, we see that Paul expected the Philippians to be governed by humility of mind. Have, this, have these thoughts, such as were with Christ Jesus, who demonstrated preeminent perfect humility. Think this way. In 2.5, we see that Paul expected the Philippians to think again like Jesus in his own humility of mind, which produced a humility of conduct as well. And the final category of our engagement with the major theme of thinking in mind is a direct overlap with the final major theme that we'll be working through today, namely unity, here expressed as unity of mind. And while this is not some overwhelming expression of the matter of thinking, it is uniquely impactful. So in 127, Paul expected the Philippians would stand firm with one mind. That was the expectation, unity of mind. In 2.2, we observed that Paul both expected that the Philippians would think the same way and also think on one purpose. And lastly, and of no small consequence, we have in 4.2, Paul called upon two faithful ladies and servants of Christ to think the same way in the Lord. 
Now, by way of summary for the engagement of the major thematic element of thinking or mind, we have seen its expression and application range from thinking about others to mature expressions of thought to wrong thinking to humility of thought and finally, a unity of mind. And you can see thinking, specifically right and unified thinking, was very important to Paul. And here, to this church that was doing well, he pressed the matter firmly, as I'm confident he would do for us too. Because you're a good church, but you can do better. And how can we do better? Be unified in mind. Next, we have unity. Now, we just talked about unity. Well, I had not originally considered unity one of the major themes of Philippians. I had actually, I saw it rather as a, a glue-like element. Unity's here, and unity's there, and, and then you start seeing unity here and there so often, you decide, well, you know what? Unity's a kind of a major theme, isn't it? So this line of thinking was likely, and again, a kind of Maybe the redundancy of passages that would be cited and focusing on unity. We've already talked about that. So is it still a major theme? Again, well, if it's here, there, and everywhere, probably is a major theme. Now, what about the limited times it's overtly expressed? That's okay. That's not necessarily, it's not about how often something's expressed. It's where and how and how it contributes to the larger, larger argument. And what about the lack of clear categories to group these references? Well, that, that did present a challenge. What kind of unities can we couple this with? But wrestled through that as I continue wrestling with the book, and I do believe it should be identified as a major theme, and I hope to persuade you of that accordingly. Now, being said, I only have two categories for unity, and the remaining verses are all independent expressions of the theme. These two categories are unity in spirit and unity in mind. Unity of spirit is expressed in 127 and 2.2. In 127, Paul shared of his praying for the Philippians. An important element of this prayer was that they would be standing firm in one spirit. Then in 2.2, in pressing the Philippians to a proper walk, he directs them to fulfill his joy by being united in spirit. Now coming to unity of mind, we're plainly returning to text that we've just considered. I recognize that, but again, there's okay. That redundancy and overlap, I think, is informing us of how we should, should, these, should see these things knit together. And we're approaching them from a slightly different vantage point. So in 127, we advance from one spirit now to the matter of praying that they would also maintain one mind. We also return to 2.2 where we see the emphasis expressed twice, first by the exhortation to think the same way and then by the exhortation of thinking on one purpose. Next, we come to 3.15, where Paul expressed his own great pursuit, one framed in right thinking, and then he exhorts that all believers think in this same way. And lastly, we have 4.2, where he has urged these faithful co-laborers to think the same way in the Lord. Now, four more references, and we'll conclude this major theme's development. Again, in 127, we have yet another expression of unity. This time is that, that of contending together. That's unity, contending together. And 2-2, once more, we also have yet another expression of unity, this time an exhortation to maintain the same love. And you think, well, you we just hit 2-2 so many times. Well, there's different expressions of unity that he's drawing out. And 2-17-18, there's the matter of Paul commanding a reciprocation of joy, a reciprocation that is a plain expression of unity. As we've talked about, I rejoice and share my joy. Now you rejoice and share your joy too. That's an expression of unity. 
And finally, in 3.16, after having addressed that some will not think consistently in truth with others, Paul states, quote, however, let us keep walking in step with the same standard to which we have attained. He's expecting expression of unity in our walking together. So once more, the development of the major theme of unity may appear to be a bit redundant and not especially robust, but unity is a critical component of this book, and unity of mind centers Paul's aim. So let's consider what I believe is the aim of his letter once more, and then how these two themes may be at the center of the concert of Paul's major themes in Philippians. So we've concluded that Paul wrote to affirm and strengthen the unity of a joyful fellowship, a unity that is becoming of Christ's church, notably a unity of mind. To this end, he encouraged the Philippians to progress in the gospel, even as the gospel itself has progressed, to follow the rich range of examples that they have been afforded, to be governed by a view to the resurrection, and to work out all these matters in one another's lives while joyfully trusting God and his rich provisions in Christ. Now, keep that in mind for a moment while also reaching back to how we opened our time this morning. Remember I spoke of a child's bedtime prayer and also my, gradu- my participating in a graduation ceremony by praying that the Lord would keep the young adults who were finishing a chapter in their lives. And why did we speak about such things? Because prayer communicates something. It communicates not only our hopes and desires, but also our understanding of God and his purposes, how he chooses to engage with this world, his people, and in such, magnify his glory. Paul understood this. And while I'm confident that he prayed much more exhaustively for the Philippians, this is what he expressed to them regarding this labor on their behalf. Again, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in full knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and without fault until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So a child prays for the Lord to keep their soul, because in the simplicity of their understanding the things of God, they know at the least to entrust their souls to his care. I pray that the Lord would keep those young persons who are graduating because I understood the nature of this life and the world that they will have to negotiate. Paul prayed for a love that would abound in knowledge and discernment. And he also prayed with a view to the Philippians being found ready for our Lord's return, his sure return. Now, as we press toward our conclusion this morning, I'm going to argue that Paul's prayer helps us properly value the centrality of these two themes that come together as unity of mind, and as such, guides our stated aim of this letter. And I hope to make this case from three passages that have been drawn from a number of times this morning as we've worked through the major themes of the book. Those passages are 1, 27 to 28, 2, 1 to 5, and 4, 1 to 3. And I chose these three passages because of their unique roles within the letter and with a view to their respective commands, mindful that Paul's prayers would not be detached from expected courses of thought and conduct. He's not just throwing out nice statements. He expected thought and conduct to accompany them. So with this in view, we're going to give our attention very briefly first to one 27 and 28, a passage that provides for us the first, and I would argue the foundational command for the letter. Paul writes, only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, 
so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. First note the passage's command. Live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what he's He's directing them to. That's what he's commanding, expecting them to do. Live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then how does he flesh that command out? By expressing the expectation that the Philippians are standing firm. An expectation that was rich in unity. Standing firm in one spirit. Standing firm with one mind. Contending together. Worthy lives. Lives that stand firm with one another such as the message of the opening and foundational command. Next, we come to 2, 1 to 5, which gives an, an intensive buildup to the command to fulfill Paul's own joy before advancing to another command, which is to have a view to the preeminent example of Christ. So we read in 2, 1 to 5, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy. That you, might, that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind regarding one another is more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So the first command here is, fulfill my joy. Now, we've already established that this is a, a letter that is rich in joy. But note how it's expressed here. There's a, this magnificent buildup. You, you got that. If there's this, if there's this, if there's this. Then, and because there is, reach the peak, as it were, the command for Paul's, to fulfill Paul's joy. Fulfill my own joy in Christ. And how are they expected to go about this work of securing his joy? By thinking the same way, by maintaining the same love, by being united in spirit, by thinking on one purpose, by having an others-oriented humility. You see that clear pattern of unity. Now, you may have reasonably concluded now, again, that the language of unity is, okay, you, you made your point that it's, it's present in the command. It's present in this buildup, as it were, in 127 and, and 28 and 2, 1 to 4. But is unity of mind truly the centering of the larger concert of major elements? Is it just unity, or is it specifically unity of mind? Well, let's continue from where we left off, picking up at verse 5, and with it, the next command where Paul directs our attention to the preeminent example of what he expects of the Philippians, namely having a view to Christ by stating, have this way of thinking in yourselves. Unity, unity, unity. How do you do it? You look to Christ by doing what? By thinking this way. How do you think? You think with unity. Unity on these matters. Unity developed in this way. So again, did you hear that? A command for unified thinking in the Lord in a rather uniquely consequential context within the book. And this brings us to our final passage, 4, 1 to 3. And what we will see here is a clear tie back to the opening and foundational command while applying the only personal command and personal words of restoration in the letter. Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers, 
loved and long for, my joy and crown, and this way stand firm in the Lord. My beloved, I urge Judea and I urge Syntyche to think the same way in the Lord. Indeed, I ask you also, genuine companion, help these women who have contended together alongside of me in the gospel with also Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, let me show you why I believe that Paul would have us bring the whole of this book's strength to bear on what may appear to, to some as a sidebar exhortation for a few ladies who are having a difficult go at it. I don't think that's how he wants us to view it. I don't think he's th- writing joy and unity of mind. And oh, I, I heard these ladies are struggling with that. Probably should say something about that. No, I think he's bringing the whole weight of the letter to bear on this particular passage. First note the command in verse 1 of chapter 4. Stand firm. Second, note the command in verse 3. Help these women. Third, Between these commands, note how Paul describes these women. They have contended alongside of him in the gospel. They've contended alongside of him in the gospel. Now, let's put these pieces together. First, we have the command to stand firm. A verb that is used one other time in this letter. A detail of potentially little consequence, except that it helped frame the opening and foundational command found in chapter 1. Second, we have the description of the women as those who have contended together alongside Paul in the gospel. And the only other time that this term for contend is used in the New Testament also comes in the same opening and foundational command of chapter 1. And as you can see, it's not some incidental use of the term, but it's but is of an exact nature that we see in chapter 4. It's a contending for the gospel. The two uses of that term, contending for the gospel. Now, do you see that when Paul gives his first command of this letter, what does he do? What is the command of the letter? How does he build it out? To live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does he do? How does he flesh it out? He fleshes it out with the expectation that you are standing firm with the clear unity while contending for the gospel. That's the opening, I would argue, foundational for command. Walk worthy of the gospel. How? Standing firm, clear unity, contending for the gospel. That's exactly what he's calling upon these women to be restored to do. As he now directly commands us to, quote, stand firm, before commanding an unnamed companion who has a relationship with himself and these women to help be brought back to a unity of mind in the Lord. Now consider the second command of this passage, this intensely personal call to help these women. Again, I say intensely personal. Nowhere else in the letter do you have something like that where he just says, it's things like joy, live this way, have this mind. But now this is a, if, if I were teaching and I just said, could, could you help these two? Whoa. That's gotten quite personal now, quite personal. Help these women. By name, help these women. This petition to act was so personal so that these women who labored in unity for the gospel alongside of Paul might be brought back to a unity of mind amongst themselves. And as you think on that, as you think about what are they being restored to, these, the, those who should stand firm, who have walked in gospel unity and gospel service, it's calling for a unity of mind. Now think about that and let your attention drift back to chapter 2 where we have the first of what I would argue are, two, uh, are the first of two intensely personal commands in this letter. 
We see a tensely personal command in chapter 4, but there was one that preceded it. Fulfill my joy. Now, you could argue, well, he also says, I shared my joy with you, you shared my joy with you, or you share your joy with me, and, and this reciprocating joy. But here I see an intensely personal command. If there's this, if there's this, if there's this, and there's this, and there is, fulfill my joy. Intense personal command, an intense personal command in chapter 4. Help these women. And how is this other intensely personal command framed? With a view to unity, namely a unity of mind. And so I'm persuaded to conclude that of the range of major themes that weave throughout this letter, we ought to view unity of mind as the centering of this tapestry, as the unity in concert with the other themes and developments of this letter. They flesh themselves out. They flesh out Paul's prayer to this beloved church. I, I think that he is making it plain that if you want to understand how I'm, I'm thinking about the Lord, his purposes, this church, this, per, this church that is dear, faithful, and sweet fellowship, joyful. It's with a view to their unity of mind. And we see that with, again, his commands, his language, the intense, intensely personal nature of the language that he employs, and the way that he, again, speaks to the, the restoration of these ladies as he's cultivated throughout the letter. And so I would argue, view Philippians through Paul's prayer. And how does Paul's prayer work itself out? Well, it works itself out so as to bring us to the aim of his writing to affirm and strengthen the unity of a joyful fellowship, a unity that is becoming of Christ's church, notably a unity of mind. And to this end, he encouraged the Philippians to progress in the gospel even as the gospel itself has progressed, to follow the rich range of examples that they had been afforded, to be governed by a view to the resurrection, and to work out all these matters in one another's lives while joyfully trusting God and his rich provisions in Christ. So I hope I've persuaded you regarding Paul's aim in writing and in the esteemed place that unity of mind plays in such matters. And that's not just because that would be a satisfying conclusion to introducing the book. I, I did want to introduce it well. I did want to frame it. I did want to, to shape how you think about Philippians so that when we start slugging it out in verse by verse and passage by passage, you have a, a, a direction and understanding and appreciation of how it's going to develop. That's helpful. But that wasn't my primary aim today. Rather, my primary aim is that I have a view of the fact that, as I've already mentioned you also are a good church, but you could always do better. And so if we understand what drove this joyful discourse, then I think maybe we can also better appreciate the direction that we ought to go on our own joyful journey and the sweetness of the fellowship the Lord's entrusted to us, and that would be to have a unity of mind in the Lord. All right, let's go to him in prayer now. Lord, I do thank you that um, Paul, in your providence, was called to Macedonia. And journeying to Macedonia, he came to Philippi, and then through a variety of uh, challenging circumstances, you secured your church there. And I could imagine there's a lot of thoughts and probably a lot of uh, struggles with the people of Philippi largely because of how he was treated and how the gospel was or was not received and the interest that may have been there. But in that place, uh, 
you secured a most sweet relationship with a, a local faithful fellowship, one that, that indeed filled Paul with joy. And I know there's other expressions of like joy. I think about the Thessalonians, also in Macedonia, the joy that he expressed and felt toward them. That's good. I, I'm, I'm grateful for those relationships, but it's so sweet and, and saturating throughout this letter. And I think about that, and how, do we, how can we have joy? And how do, what does joy look like? Well, I think it's clear among the many things that frame thoughts in the letter and that frame thoughts about joy is that unity of mind. And I recognize also that um, Paul, laboring through that, he has to, at some point in time, and he does it in chapter 4, he has to express that there are two within the fellowship that, that this, the sweetness of what he's been expressing and expecting has been lost on some level. And so he's going to speak to that. And I thank you, Lord, that teaching and wrestling through the text, what people come to mind in a variety of capacities, I can't think of anybody in that standing right now. But I also know that with time, we're going to struggle. We're going to struggle with one another. We're going to struggle with the application of truth. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful, to, to be like this unnamed faithful servant and to come alongside them, to help them, to help one another. Because we want to be a good church. We want to be one that enjoys the sweetness of fellowship that is becoming of Christ's people. And so, Lord, would you help us to, to maintain and strengthen that unity of mind? It's not that we're going to agree on all things and all circumstances. That's okay. But, Lord, that we would maintain a unity of mind as is befitting those who are in fellowship with one another as those who are in fellowship in the sufferings of Christ and the labors of, of kingdom purposes and, in, and in all such things. Lord, help us. We pray this way because prayer communicates something. And we are, we're communicating now we want your help because we want to be pleasing to you. We want to walk in your joy. And so we give thanks to you that uh, you have done and continue to do a kind work and ask that you would continue to find us faithful to these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.